Part One of Temple Trouble by H. Beam Piper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenever. Temple Trouble by H. Beam Piper. Part One. Through a haze of incense and altar smoke. Yat-Zar looked down from his golden throne at the end of the dusky, many-pillared temple. Yat-Zar was an idol of gigantic size and extraordinarily good workmanship. He had three eyes made of turquoises as big as doorknobs, and six arms. In his three right hands from top to bottom he held a sword with a flame-shaped blade, a jeweled object of vaguely phallic appearance, and, by the ears, a rabbit. In his left hand were a bronze torch with burnished copper flames, a big goblet, and a pair of scales with an egg in one pan balanced against a skull in the other. He had a long bifurcate beard made of gold wire, feet like a bird's, and other rather startling anatomical features. His throne was set upon a stone plinth about twenty feet high, into the front of which a doorway opened. Behind him was a wooden screen, elaborately gilded and painted. Directly in front of the idol, Ghulam the high priest knelt on a big blue and gold cushion. He wore a gold-fringed robe of dark blue, and a tall conical gold mitre, and a bright blue false beard, forked like the idol's golden one. He was intoning a prayer, and holding up in both hands, for divine inspection and approval, a long curved knife. Behind him, about thirty feet away, stood a square stone altar, around which four of the lesser priests, in light blue robes with less gold fringe and dark blue false beards, were busy with the preliminaries to the sacrifice. At considerable distance, about halfway down the length of the temple, some two hundred worshippers, a few substantial citizens in gold-fringed tunics, artisans in tunics without gold fringe, soldiers in mail hauberks and plain steel caps one officer in ornately gilded armor a number of peasants in nondescript smocks and women of all classes were beginning to prostrate themselves on the stone floor ghulam rose to his feet bowing deeply to yatsar and holding the knife extended in front of him and backed away toward the altar as he did one of the lesser priests reached into a fringed and embroidered sack, and pulled out a live rabbit, a big one, obviously of domestic breed, holding it by the ears while one of his fellows took it by the hind legs. A third priest caught up a silver pitcher, while the fourth fanned the altar-fire with a sheet silver fan. As they began chanting antiphonally, Ghulam turned and quickly whipped the edge of his knife across the rabbit's throat. The priest with the pitcher stepped in to catch the blood, and when the rabbit was bled it was laid on the fire. Ghulam and his four assistants all shouted together, and the congregation shouted in response. The high priest waited as long as was decently necessary, and then, holding the knife in front of him, stepped around the prayer cushion and went through the door under the idol into the Holy of Holies. A boy in novice's white robes met him and took the knife, carrying it reverently to a fountain for washing. Eight or ten under-priests, sitting at a long table, rose and bowed, then sat down again and resumed their eating and drinking. 
At another table a half-dozen upper priests nodded to him in casual greeting. Crossing the room, Ghulam went to the temple veil in front of the house of Yat-Zar, where only the highest of the priesthood might go, and parted the curtains, passing through until he came to the great gilded door. Here he fumbled under his robe and produced a small object, like a mechanical pencil, inserting the pointed end in a tiny hole in the door and pressing on the other end. The door opened, then swung shut behind him, and as it locked itself the lights came on within. Ghulam removed his mitre and his false beard, tossing them aside on a table, then undid his sash and peeled out of his robe. His regalia discarded, he stood for a moment in loose trousers and a soft white shirt, with a pistol-like weapon in a shoulder holster under his left arm. No longer Ghulam, the high priest of Yat-Zar, but now Stranor Sleth, resident agent of this timeline of the fourth-level Proto-Aryan Sector for the Transtemporal Mining Corporation. Then he opened a door at the other side of the anteroom and went to the antigrav shaft, stepping over the edge and floating downward. There were temples of Yat-Zar on every timeline of the Proto-Aryan Sector, for the worship of Yat-Zar was ancient among the Holgun people of that area of Paratime, but there were only a few which had such installations as this, and all of them were owned and operated by Trans-Temporal Mining, which had the Fissionable Ores franchise for this sector. During the ten elapsed centuries since Trans-Temporal had begun operations on this sector, the process had become standardized. A few first-level paratimers would transpose to a selected timeline and abduct an upper priest of Yat-Zar, preferably the high priest of the temple at Yoldav or Zurb. He would be drugged and transposed to the first level, where he would receive hypnotic indoctrination and, while unconscious, have an operation performed on his ears which would enable him to hear sounds well above the normal audible range. He would be able to hear the shrill sonar cries of bats, for instance, and, more importantly, he would be able to hear voices when the speaker used a first-level audio-frequency step-up phone. He would also receive a memory obliteration from the moment of his abduction and a set of pseudo-memories of a visit to the heaven of Yat-Zar on the other side of the sky. Then he would be returned to his own timeline and left on a mountaintop far from his temple, where an unknown peasant, pleading a donkey, would always find him, return him to the temple, and then vanish inexplicably. Then the priest would begin hearing voices, usually while serving at the altar. They would warn of future events, which would always come to pass, exactly as foretold. Or they might bring tidings of things happening at a distance, the news of which would not arrive by normal means for days or even weeks. Before long the holy man, who had been carried alive to the heaven of Yat-Zar, would acquire a most awesome reputation as a prophet, and would speedily rise to the very top of the priestly hierarchy. Then he would receive two commandments from Yat-Zar. The first would ordain that all lower priests must travel about from temple to temple, never staying longer than a year at any one place. This would ensure a steady influx of newcomers personally unknown to the local upper priests, 
and many of them would be first-level paratimers. Then there would be a second commandment. A house must be built for Yat-Zar against the rear wall of each temple. Its dimensions were minutely stipulated. Its walls were to be of stone, without windows, and there was to be a single door opening into the Holy of Holies, and before the walls were finished the door was to be barred from within. A triple veil of brocaded fabric was to be hung in front of this door. Sometimes such innovations met with opposition from the more conservative members of the hierarchy. When they did, the principal objector would be seized with a sudden and violent illness. He would recover if and when he withdrew his objections. Very shortly after the house of Yat-Zar would be completed, strange noises would be heard from behind the thick walls. Then, after a while, one of the younger priests would announce that he had been commanded in a vision to go behind the veil and knock upon the door. Going behind the curtains, he would use his door activator to let himself in, and return by paratime conveyor to the first level to enjoy a well-earned vacation. When the high priest would follow him behind the veil, after a few hours, and find that he had vanished, it would be announced as a miracle. A week later an even greater miracle would be announced. The young priest would return from behind the triple veil, clad in such raiment as no man had ever seen, and bearing in his hands a strange box. He would announce that Yat-Zar had commanded him to build a new temple in the mountains, at a place to be made known by the voice of the god speaking out of the box. This time there would be no doubts and no objections. A procession would set out, headed by the new revelator bearing the box, and when the clicking voice of the god spoke rapidly out of it, the site would be marked and work would begin. No local labor would ever be employed on such temples. The masons and woodworkers would be strangers, come from afar and speaking a strange tongue, and when the temple was completed they would never be seen to leave it. Men would say that they had been put to death by the priest and buried under the altar to preserve the secrets of the god, and there would always be an idol of Yat-Zar, obviously of heavenly origin, since its workmanship was beyond the powers of any local craftsman. The priests of such temple would be exempt by divine decree from the rule of yearly travel. Nobody, of course, would have the least idea that there was a uranium mine in operation under it, shipping ore to another timeline. The Hulgun people knew nothing about uranium, and neither did they as much as dream that there were other timelines. The secret of paratime transposition belonged exclusively to the first-level civilization which had discovered it, and it was a secret that was guarded well. Stranor Sleth, dropping to the bottom of the anti-grav shaft, cast a hasty and instinctive glance to the right, where the freight conveyors were. One was gone, taking its cargo over hundreds of thousands of parry years to the first level. Another had just returned, empty, and a third was receiving its cargo from the robot mining machines far back under the mountain. Two young men and a girl, in first-level costumes, sat at a bank of instruments and visor-screens handling the whole operation, and six or seven armed guards, having inspected the newly arrived conveyor and finding that it had picked up nothing inimicable en route, were relaxing and lighting cigarettes. Three of them, Stranor Sleth noticed, 
wore the green uniforms of the Paratime Police. "'When did those fellows get in?' he asked the people at the control desk, nodding toward the green-clad newcomers. "'About ten minutes ago on the passenger conveyor,' the girl told him. "'The big boys here, Bronhot Klav and a Paratime Police officer, they're in your office.' "'I was expecting that,' Stranor Sleth said. Then he turned down the corridor to the left. Two men were waiting for him in his office. One was short and stocky, with an angry, impatient face. Bronad Klav, Transtemporal's vice-president in charge of operations. The other was tall and slender, with handsome and entirely expressionless features. He wore a paratime police officer's uniform, with the blue badge of hereditary nobility on his breast, and carried a sigma-ray needler in a belt holster. "'Were you waiting long, gentlemen?' Stranor Sleth asked. "'I was holding Sunset Sacrifice up in the temple.' "'No, we just got here,' Bernard Klav said. "'This is Verkenval, Mavrod of Neros, Special Assistant to Chief Tortha of the Paratime Police. Stranor Sleth, our resident agent here.' Stranor Sleth touched hands with Verkenval. "'I've heard a lot about you, sir,' he said. "'Everybody working in Paratime has, of course.' I'm sorry we have a situation here that calls for your presence, but since we have, I'm glad you're here in person. You know what our trouble is, I suppose?" In a general way, Verkenval replied, Chief Tartha and Bernard Klav have given me the main outline, but I'd like to have you fill in the details. Well, I told you everything, Bernard Klav interrupted impatiently. It's just that Stranor's let this blasted local king, Kerchuk, get out of control. If I—he stopped short, catching sight of the shoulder holster under Stranor Sleth's left arm. Were you wearing that needler up in the temple? he demanded. You're blasted right I was, Stranor Sleth retorted. At any time I can't arm myself for my own protection on this timeline, you can have my resignation. I'm not getting into the same jam as those people at Zerg. Well, never mind about that, Birkenval intervened. Of course Stranor Sleth has a right to arm himself. I wouldn't think of being caught without a weapon on this timeline myself. Now, Stranor, suppose you tell me what's been happening here from the beginning of this trouble. End of Part One